good that you could be with us. Yeah, can you um, tell us a little bit about uh, CAPAD to start off? Uh, where did it come from? Okay, so 2014, Sea Change, um, the local community sort of environmental economy social group, had a series of kitchen table conversations. And the question was basically, what, you know, what would you want to change? What could you make better? What's wrong? How could we make it right? And lots of things came back. And when we were drawing all these threads together, it became really clear um, that one of the common things that everybody was identifying, not necessarily per se, but when you thought about why things weren't working, it was because government's not working. So we thought then, okay, how are we going to fix government? Let's, let's see if there's enough interest in this group to come up with an organisation to make government um, work better. How do we do that? Well, we make democracy better, all sorts of different sorts of democracies. But what we really want is citizens being able to participate in the policymaking and the decision-making process. So out of that exercise, CAPAD in 2015 grew out of that and then has been sort of growing up ever since. Mm. And the lyrics we were just hearing in Metallica, I yep. know that was a special request and there yep. was a lot of refrain there of We the People. That's right. And you're a bit of a Metallica fan too. So, yeah. Um, would you like to tell us a bit about the lyrics and, and what well, inspired I mean, th- you for they're that? They're weird lyrics because, mm-hmm. I mean, what grabs you is We the People. And, of course, if you're thinking about the Gettysburg Address and the American mm-hmm. Constitution, it's all about We the People. Mm-hmm. Um, and then they trans... Um, Butt it up, juxtapose it with this some kind of monster. So what are they talking about? We the people are some kind of monster or is something else some kind of monster? So if you listen to the rest of the lyrics, it would seem to be there is this, you know, oppressive patriarchal sort of system that's grinding down the people and yet we the people are going to rise. That's my interpretation. I don't know if that's what James Hepworth's or Metallica's interpretation is, but that's what I hear when I listen to this song. Yeah, yeah. So we're talking a lot about um, sort of the origin of democracy and it being more transparent. Yep. And one of the things I really love about what your work is highlighting is that you have um, this sense that we've lost a lot of that transparency and we've stepped away from really seeing our candidates as people, um, that they've become their platforms not human beings and human beings want to vote for other human beings they don't want to vote for automatons Um, or a party platform yes exactly so um, this is a lot of what your work is about is is helping people to really see candidates as human beings that they can relate to and then maybe make more of a connection with the platform that's um, aligns with their values and is a better fit yeah, well, I mean, partially it's it's thinking about candidates and people we want to represent us as human beings. And I think that operates on a couple of levels. The, the idea is not just that they are human beings, but they have a set of skills and knowledge and experience that actually cuts them out to represent us in our representative demo- democratic system. So, you know, the candidate statement asks them for things like you know, what are their skills and experience for being an MLA? Mm-hmm. But given that the Legislative Assembly and government is so small, mm-hmm. the probability of being a minister in the government, if you get elected on that side of the House, is quite high. Mm-hmm. So what are their skills that um, they're going to bring to a ministry? But the critical thing is, um, because we see what happens between the community or citizens and our representatives as having some sort of relationship then we want to know how they plan to relate with us when they're representing us in government. And so um, 
we, we, we ask all candidates, and this is the candidate statement process we'll talk about in a minute, but um, we want to know how they plan to represent us in Parliament, how they plan to get us involved in policy making and decision making, and how do they explain to us why the decisions that they make are made. Um, so it's a two-way relationship. And we also want to know how they're going to promote good government because, um, you know, this is a radical notion that maybe many listeners haven't thought of, but mm -hmm. if we think about what's happening at the federal level and we think about what happened in Germany in the late 1930s or the 1930s, we are slipping into fascism mm -hmm. and it's really worrying. So one of the ways we can combat this is having those good working relationships. Mm. It's more a working relationship than a personal relationship, mm. but good working relationships mm. with those representatives. Mm. And I understand you've also created something called a Statement of MLA Citizen Expectations. Yes. Which is to um, get the representatives really clear on um, how they're going to deliver what they're promising and how transparent that can be for people. Well, that's right, because I think in this relationship, clearly there's a, it's a two-way street. And so um, there is, you know, what do representatives have to do to represent us well, but there's also what do we, the people, have to do to, to work with them. Um, and so uh, we have come up with this statement, which I am just having a little bit of difficulty... And that's just me passing the old-fashioned paper to Peter. Yeah. <laughs> and then so, we, we're so know, used to electronics. That's right. <laughs> well, I'm, you know, saving trees, you know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> anyway, things like the representatives, you know, they should know about government. They should know about transparency. They should know about and support meaningful ways to people engage. No, I'm not going through the whole list. <laughs> this is on our website, you know, <laughs> canberralliance.org.au. Um, and also citizens need to understand politics and institutions as well. They need to be prepared to be involved. Um, they need to be able to set standards that the parliamentarians have to live up to. And they need to, you know, actually work on holding um, the, the candidates and, and the representatives when they're elected to account for what they do. And so it's a two-way street. We all need to work at this. And that was one of my questions is accountability is something I think people are feeling really jaded about. Because, you know, a lot of people, when they make a decision about how they're going to vote, um, it's often an emotional one. And there's a real sense of, yes, it's intellectual too, but I think there's, you know, people with charisma and that, you know, can carry a, um, a strong emotion through, can sometimes win the popular vote. Yep. Uh, and then at the end of it, when we have a newly elected official and none of the promises are being kept and there is seems to be no accountability taking place or very little accountability taking place so so how do we improve that how do we um you know yep. hold hold our representatives to account okay so i think it, it's interesting because yes the traditional mm. notion of accountability in our sort of westminster four-year electoral system mm. is well if you don't like me vote me out next time mm. or don't vote for me next time but you know, of course, that's four years of doing stuff where you're not account. So, and we've seen how dramatic four years can be in the US. Yes, <laughs> it's a long four years. It's a long four years. But so, if we start thinking, what's the mechanics of how citizens and and um, candidates or representatives can work together? So, you know, we we've interviewed um, 
MLAs about this and we've mm. interviewed um, citizens about this and we've actually looked at the promises that the candidates for the 2016 ACT election made when they filled in the candidate statements there. And so, you know, MLAs think, well, it's, you know, it's hanging around in shopping centres, having the odd sort of, you know, kitchen table or, you know, town hall meeting, um, being available on the telephone, responding to emails. Um, but that's sort of very one way. That's them controlling the agenda and, and waiting for the citizens to come in. Citizens, on the other hand, say, you know, they want transparency and they want honesty and they want, you know, candidates to come and talk to them. Collectively, they're less um, clear on what the mechanisms are. But if we think about uh, other mechanisms, so there are, you know, there are more formal things than town hall meetings. So there are what are called mini-publics. So mini-publics are things like citizens' juries or citizens' assemblies. What they do is they bring groups of random citizens together to allow the citizens to talk about an issue and to come up with a collective position that they can put to the MLA. The MLA can then take that into um, the deliberations that they do inside Parliament, inside the Assembly. They can then come back to another Assembly for the same people to report back what happened. Now, these things can be one-off. So in 2018, we had the third-party insurance Citizens' Assembly, we had the Carers Support Citizens' Assembly, we had a couple of other Citizens' Assemblies that the ACT government used to um, get the view of, of citizens. Um, that could be un ongoing. John Dryzak at the um, Institute for Governments and Policy Analysis at Canberra Uni has this idea that maybe we have a standing Citizens' Assembly. And there are lots of examples from around the world um, in uh, Western Austria, there's a state in Western Austria that has a standing citizens' assembly where they bring issues into the assembly. Citizens randomly are selected to those assemblies. They debate them. They, they come up with ideas. They bring all that wisdom and knowledge experience and lived experience that citizens have into the conversation that then feeds up into the decision-making that the parliamentarians have. Mm. And what sort of levels of willingness have you seen um, with this, with our representatives to participate and actually take action? Um, well, at the moment, we're in this early transition stage. So I think looking at current levels of willingness um, are less useful. I mean, there is willingness for people to be involved. I mean, people, when we've talked to them, say, at Southfest last year and the year before, were interested in being involved. They just didn't have the mechanics. Um, it's a bit like jury service. You know, you will get called up, you will do your time. Um, it might happen, you know, four Saturdays in a row and then you've done your stint. So it's not huge de-onerous. Um, what we've found from interviewing people who have been involved in the ACT government assemblies and what the research into many public shows us is that people, once they have become involved, are a lot more willing to be more involved because they actually both understand better how the processes of work, they know to learn a lot more about, you know, the topic that they were brought in to, to, to discuss mm -hmm. and so they feel a lot more capable of talking to other people mm -hmm. about it and they feel empowered by the fact that they've been part of this process and so they are quite happy to do it again and they're quite mm -hmm. happy to recommend to their friends and family mm -hmm. that it's a good thing to get involved in. Mm 
I'm wondering if this process has actually been encouraging um, more voting interaction. Like, you know, Australia is a country where, um, you know, voting is compulsory, but yep. the US, uh, Canada, other nations, it's not compulsory. So that often have low voter turnouts. Yep. And that comes from lack of um, faith, lack of trust, maybe um, disinterest because they think they can't change anything yeah. um, and despondency. So, you know, with this engagement, like this is a model that perhaps could be taken internationally. Is it is it operating internationally? It's, also, it's already happening internationally. I mean, many publics are happening all around the mm. world. I mean, France just had their, their mini public, mm. their citizens jury into their greenhouse gas mm. climate change response. Um, Ireland's had a series of mini publics over the last few years into into abortion law reform, into constitutional reform. Um, so these things are being used more and more by government all the time. And um, you know, in Australia, uh, South Australia's been playing with it. ACT's been playing with it. There's also this concept called um, uh, blah blah blah. Budget participatory budgeting. Ah, yes, yes. So that was launched by Porto Alegre in um, in Brazil. It's it's spread around the world, and and um, even Melbourne City Council had a participatory budgeting mm-hmm. thing with their citizens, where they they got a group of, of um, citizens and business owners around and and said, you know, what what do we need to do? How are we going to do this? That council actually said, you need to put the rates up. You don't have enough money to do what we want you to do. The government, the town city council said, we can't do that. People won't like it. (laughs) But they ended up doing it because people wanted the services that the rates provided. And we've seen that in countries that have high taxes but really good social service supports. And if you canvass people, they all say that they're very willing to pay higher taxes and to have these social supports in place and to take care of the most vulnerable. And there's very little resentment I've ever heard. I mean, I spent time in Sweden and they're very, very comfortable with their high taxes for what they receive as a benefit. That's right. As long as you're getting the benefit and it's not all getting spent on submarines. Yes. That's right. Um, who was the guy in the States who delivered 452 shovels to the Internal Revenue Department because he <laughs> didn't want to have his, his money spent on the military? <laughs> <laughs> nice one. Here you go, guys. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's great. Um, you know, you, you say here in part of your creed that real democracy is participatory and that it produces decisions that pe- put people first, not just the top 1%. And this is something we're hearing a lot of, with, yep. you know, especially with an economic downturn. Yep. And we've heard so many quotes. I mean, I like to follow Bernie Sanders. He gets some yep. good stuff going. And, um, you know, talking about how much money the billionaires have made during COVID. Yep. And then you've got pretty much everybody else um, whose their income has dropped by 30, 40, 50% or more. Um, so this is something that I think is really relevant to today, yeah. you know, talking about representing everybody, not just this tiny little group at the top of the pyramid. Well, that's right. And, I mean, this this goes comes back really to one of your earlier points about democracy. I mean, democracy is one of, is one of these incredibly slippery concepts because everybody has a slightly different meaning for mm. democracy. And the democracy that we have inherited at the moment I mean, I think there's two important things to think about this. One is, it's a pro, it's a a point in history. It's evolving. It has evolved from what it was back in 15th century England, where it was just the nobles who got to sit around with the king and natter stuff out, um, through to this idea that you know people like women and maybe even 16-year-olds should be involved somehow, um, and it's going to go somewhere else. 
where it goes is up to us to um, to decide. Hmm. So, given at we're at this point of time, and we've got sort of European democracy, the the English democracy that that the Commonwealth of the British Commonwealth has inherited from the Westminster system, and then we've got American democracy and other forms of republican democracy, and they're all slightly different. But what they all agree on and what they've all got fundamentally wrong is this idea that you get to participate in democracy by voting for your representative. Now, the fascinating thing is if you read the letters that the American founding fathers were writing to each other about this, they were really clear they didn't want the masses and the hoi polloi involved in governance because they weren't educated enough to be making wise decisions. And so they constructed the American Constitution and various other constitutions around the world have gone down this path as well to mean that, you know, we are the educated people, we know how things work, it's up to us to be making the deliberations. It's a very paternalistic way of thinking about governance. But, of course, we have to give a sop to the people so they can choose between us. So a lot of people, um, political philosophers, talk about this idea of an electoral oligarchy. So the oligarchs are there... We get to choose which oligarchs are going to reign over it, but it's still an oligarch. Well, you can see that in a lot of the uh, the political dynasties that we get. You know, there's a lot of downers in there in history. I think there's a few Beasleys and yep. there's, there's probably countless others. Yep, a couple of um, runs. I guess uh, Noam Chomsky calls it society. And uh, is this there like a, a community of people who are particularly turning up again and again in, in representative democracies around the place? Or? Um... Well, yes. I mean, we talk about the 1%. The 1% doesn't necessarily have to get elected if the 1% can buy the the people, the the oligarchs who are elected. But, and this is sort of the irony, because if we think about um, in America, as you say, it's all about getting people out to vote, Mm. not who you're going to vote for. Well, not just who you're going (laughs) to vote for. there's a there's a bumper sticker or not a bu- well a bumper sticker slash um, tweet meme going around at the moment that says um, I can't remember the number something like Twix 26 million Democrat voters didn't show up in 2016 because they thought each one of them thought individually their vote wouldn't count <laughs> yes so while I'm I'm a bit down on voting voting is important because this is how we get to choose between the oligarchs at the mm-hmm. moment. Now, we can take this system somewhere else. We can change who gets elected. So one of the things that, I mean, we're involved with through CAPAD is working with uh, a mob of people in um, Melbourne and Sydney who are thinking about electorate-level mobilisations. And the excellent form of that, if we think about um, Warringah in the last election... Zali Stegall managed to get an electorate level mobilisation going. If we think about um, Wentworth um, in the by-election um, when um, who was that Prime Minister that we rolled? <laughs> so oh, oh Whitlam? <laughs> no, more sooner than that. Oh, you mean rolled, rolled. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway. Um, Labour or Liberal? <laughs> well, there was Rudd and then Gillard and then Rudd again and then um, various other people. But, yeah, anyway. Uh, Wentworth by-election. Um, then, you know, that sort of happened by electoral level mobilisation. And then, of course, Indi is the... The classic, um, really yeah. good classic example where 
Um, you know, the people didn't start out to replace Sophie Milibera. They set out to try and work with Sophie Mirabella. But when Sophie just sort of sort of said, you know, mm. well, nah, not interested. My, my way or the highway. My way or the highway, you know. Yeah. Um, can you, they, can you she, tell us the story of, of what happened in Indi there a little bit, <laughs> bit more in depth? Okay, so making it really clear, this is not my story. This is <laughs> Indi's story. But there were a group of people who started chatting together and um, decided they weren't happy with how things were running and they started to think about, well, how can we do this better? So they organised themselves into something called Voices for Indi. They decided to run a whole lot of kitchen table conversations, which are a bit like mini, mini publics. So they're groups of, you know, eight to ten citizens, people who get together just to chat about stuff, usually in a sort of structured way about, you know, what do you think's wrong? What do you think we can do about it? Where do you think we can go with this? And out of that grew a movement where they decided, well, we don't like our current representative. Let's try and work out if we can work with her. If we can't work with her, then what are we going to do next? Well, maybe we have to um, choose and elect our own. So they went through this process over quite some time and he ended up deciding that um, they weren't getting anywhere with Sophie, so they would elect their own. So they went through a process of choosing candidates. They got people in, they interviewed them. You know, they said, you know, are you the right person for this job? And then they chose one, Kathy McGowan, who said, no, not me. And they said, well, no, sorry. They make the best leaders. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so my understanding of it is that um, the, the kitchen table conversations went in two rounds. The first one was sort of to... Because the idea is that you get people from different points of view, different political yeah, spectrums yeah. Uh, together at these yeah. kitchen tables to to nut through the issues and get to know each other and that sort of stuff. And then the first round, they were figuring out what the problems actually were. Yep. And then the second round was what they wanted to do about it. Yep. And then, yeah, yeah. And then subsequent rounds in terms of mobilising people in the community to, to get active in, in supporting, you know, the community's candidate. Mm. So that's, that's a lot of time. That's a lot of time commitment to get all these meetings together. It is, but on the other hand, um, it's a bit like being involved in a mini mini public. Um, you, it's an investment of your time in getting an outcome that you want that's going to make your life better. I mean, that's why mad people go to all these meetings after hours to sort of you know, <laughs> try and do something to make the world a better place. Mm. Um, so, in a way, you know, we're not expecting necessarily all citizens all the time are going to have the the, the time to be involved you know kids have to be fed and jobs have to be done but at the same time you know if you can eke out a bit of time then you know it's maybe four hours over a few Saturdays or Sundays and then you know you've done 12 hours out of your life and you've had a had an impact and potentially an impact that's going to domino yeah. down yeah. the road. Yeah. yeah, so I interrupted you there at the point where you were saying they were looking around for candidates to represent this yeah. platform that they'd created themselves. What happened? Well, they decided that, that it was a bit of a, you know, how you get a representative. There are, there are three ways to get a representative. You can, you can appoint them, so you can go and tap them on the shoulder and say, we think you're it. There's volunteers. People can go, I'll put my hand up, um, and if there's one volunteer... Okay, they do it. But if there are several volunteers, then you have to work out which volunteer is the best volunteer. So you can have an election. Um, and you can go, okay, we think you're the best candidate for this job. That's the route Indi took. There was a bit of volunteering, a bit of tapping on the shoulder. An interview process, we think you're the one for the job. Or you can pull names out of a hat, which is called sortition or 
you know, representation by lottery, which is the classic ancient Athenian mm-hmm. and various other Greek states um, way of doing it, but also during the Renaissance and the late Middle Ages in, in Italy and various parts of Europe, mm-hmm. um, ruling elites were using um, this, particularly Florence when they were having their Republican period, you know, would, would draw names out of hats um, on the Athenian model to get the people who were going to be the magistrates for a period of time and you either did it for a particular job or you did it because you know you were going to be in the senate for that month and you would be paid for being in the senate for that month because of course you couldn't go to work but you had to feed your family so they're the sort of four ways of of doing it and often people will use a mixture so you know our classics our current system is we have volunteers who put their names up as candidates to be pre-selected or go as an independent and then we have a voting system to work out between them who's the best person we think for the job what is opaque in our system is can they do the job so this is coming back to the cap candidate statement that we're running at the moment is how do we know they can do the job well let's at least ask them why they think they can do the job and also ask them how they're going to work with us on doing the job and how they're going to work with us on making sure that the system is working democratically and in all our interests not in the interests of the oligarchs so, you know, one of the things I've had feedback on, we've been inviting various candidates to come on to the show. We're going to do a series of interviews leading up to the elections. And some feedback I had yesterday from um, one of the guests we have coming is that they weren't even getting the opportunity to have a platform because they're a smaller party, they're not as well known, and they were ecstatic that we contacted them and offered them, to, you know, to come on the show. And, you know, they said, we just don't get that kind of exposure. So, you know, you're only hearing the louder voices. Yep. You're only hearing, you know, the sort of the parties we're very familiar with, yep. whether the top three or the top four. And, you know, this is something where... Um, Again, you're sort of trying to give the power back to the people so they do feel empowered in decision-making. But if they're not able to learn about the candidates and their platforms because there's no exposure, how do we remedy that? Um, I mean, the fact that the media isn't... okay, the mainstream media, this marginal Mm -hmm. media, the peripheral, you know, community media is trying desperately to fill in that gap. But the mainstream media is... um, I mean, there are two problems. I mean, partially it's they've been sucked up into the COVID vacuum and all they want to do is COVID. Uh, But partially it's that, um, you know, some media proprietors have an interest in a particular outcome and so they're going to construct how they run their media that way. Other media proprietors are feeling... um, cowed and and afraid for their existence and so want to be really careful about sticking their head too much above the parapet i mean i could give the city news here a plug Mm. um no they're an alternative um perhaps even competitive radio station but or related to but you know they are trying to give platforms to you know whoever wants to come along and do this stuff for them uh so, I mean, it's hard. It is hard for small parties to do it. And, and the other thing that we're aware of and would like to do some work in in CAPAD is that the current electoral system is in favour of getting major parties elected. The, the, um, we need to work out how we change the voting system. Um, so we either change the electoral system to make it more easy for minor parties and independents to get elected, because that gives us a better representation of interests in the parliament. But also it comes back to this idea about choosing the right candidates. So 
Um, and so that's why we're not interested so much in what people's party platform or independent platform is. We're interested in how they're going to do the job to work with us. So whatever the issue is, they can work with us on taking that into the conversation in the assembly and the committees and, other, and the other places where we get to have an input. So really, you know, we talked about the theme of, you know, motivation and vision at the beginning. And this is really about determining what is the true motivation of this representative. Yeah. You know, and what I've learned is in talking to some of these folks we're going to have on the show is they're incredibly passionate. Yes. And they're still in that period in their political career where they really genuinely believe in what they're trying to do and make yeah. things better. And uh, you don't often hear that kind of heartfelt passion in some of our more seasoned politicians from the bigger parties. Um, I could be just making a generalisation there, but I, I just really did notice that um, when I was speaking with them, that there was uh, you yep. know, that, that really I mean, deep that, caring. That is true. Yeah. Um, and this, the, the interesting thing here is that, I mean, this is because we've got the people and we've got the system. Hmm. And the, the political system is built to operate in a particular way. And some of that is just tradition. You know, they did this in 18th and 19th century Britain, so that's how we're going to do it here. But some of it's, it's, it's you know, the, the powerful build the system to help maintain themselves in power. So the electoral system is, is you know, designed to do that. The parliamentary system is designed to do that. And so partially what we have to... So what happens is if you're young and keen and passionate and go into the system and you have to play according to the system's rules, you will get moulded to fit the system or you'll find life really difficult. Um, now, some people have incredible aptitude to do this. I mean, if we think about Jackie Lambie, um, you know, she is has managed to bend the system, but, you know, she's a rare individual. Most people, you know, decide to have a quiet life. They're going to go with the system. Because um, the system is really powerful and all systems have a purpose. And if you don't understand the purpose of the system, you're going to get extruded or broken. And I think what happens with a lot of young, keen parliamentarians is that they have to make a choice in their first um, term in, in the Assembly or in Parliament. They have to say, do I fit the system so I can try and work in the system to get stuff done? Or do I keep going my own way, in which case it's going to be a really hard life? Um, and the majority of people, because the system gets them to believe that playing in the system is what's going to help them get stuff done, choose to go that way. So they wheel and deal and they do the, you know, the background politicking and they try and work it out. And, um, but the ultimate thing is the system doesn't change. Yeah, yeah, it's funny, isn't it? The whole, the whole Australian parliamentary system sort of evolved out of the, the British one and if you look at where it came from, the, the original parliaments were the, the nobles fighting the kings mm. in order to extract some of their complete, absolute power off of them so they mm. would get treated a bit better. And then um, from there it was the nobles. And, and if you look at the feudal culture, the nobles were always you know, showing off their riches and toadying up to the king because that was how you got power. It wasn't about money in those days. And do you reckon any of that sort of... That culture, I suppose, has continued with that that one percent community down through the centuries, and is still within the system. Well, power elites always know how to remain in power. So, if you're in a feudal system and you're a noble, um, I mean, in fact, the kings weren't that important. They had to rule at the dispensation of their nobles because if they pissed off a group of nobles, 
um, you get a rebellion on your hand. And nobles had armies. So, you know, ask King John about, you know, the process of... I was going to say Magna, Magna Carta. Carta. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but, and so we're, we're built on that. You know, this is... The Magna Carta is about you can't imprison nobles. It's not fair. Um, and take their estates away. And then, you know, gradually the franchise has been sent from nobles to lesser nobles to burghers to people in towns who people who own property to people who don't own property but who are workmen, um, then women and then maybe some other people if they're unemployed. And so it's sort of come out. But in, in the process of that evolution, the basic system hasn't changed. Um, it just means that we've spread out who gets to vote for the oligarchs. Um, yeah, so it, it, that's a system issue. And part of what we're trying to do by getting different people into parliament, people who are prepared to work with the community, is this is a way we can then begin to change the system because we can then work with them on making the system work better for all of us, which is a matter of us taking some of that power and um, and, and owning it. And with that goes the responsibility of showing up for your, you know, three Saturdays a year or whatever it happens to be. But, you know, that's a small price to pay for being able to influence how the system works and changing the system. Mm. Mm. So what's your opinion on how close to the system the community might get? So, for example, in the participatory budgeting thing, which has come out of Porto Alegro, the, the government essentially would portion off part of its budget that it considered not essentials, um, so hospitals and roads and things, and let people choose how to spend that, essentially. So that's really close in with government and, yep. and, you know, that might or might not sort of have that systemic rub off on it and it's always there able to be recalled if the government decides, the new government, that they really don't like all these bloody plebeians getting in the bloody decision-making process again. Yeah. Um, yeah, how close do you think a community might want to get to, uh, to this system? I mean, there are people in the community who want to get right in there without being elected. Mm-hmm. Because they, they <laughs> yes. recognise that, um, you know, I mean, to, to be fair, we as citizens are in the system as well. I mean, we're, we're part of the system. We're, we're in the subsystem where we play the role of citizens and they play the role of governors. Um, they're in a parliamentary system which has certain ways of doing things. But what I've read about the participatory budgeting is that, in fact, it's control of the purse strings that really gives you power. Now, you're right. At the moment, it's all very much at the whim of government. And at the moment, having a citizens' assembly on an issue is at the whim of government. Um, So that being the given, it's how do we then as citizens work in that space while we have the opportunity to do it. Then there's the interesting question about, well, what happens if government tries to withdraw this thing? So people always get much ups, more upset if they're going to lose something than if they win something. So taking away the chocolate, chocolate cake is going to evince a lot more reaction than giving a chocolate cake. Well, we've seen that like, reduction <laughs> yeah. of um, job seeker and yeah. you know, possible um, cessation of job keeper yeah. well before we're through this. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
although there are some really good reasons not to go there, <laughs> well above the fact that people are going to get unhappy about losing something. It's <laughs> it's actually what they're losing, not just the income, they're losing the dignity and the ability to feed themselves. And, you know, there's a host of other th- issues. Oh, endless, there. yeah, and contribute back to the economy, on it yeah. goes, yeah. But I think if somebody runs, you know, several years' worth of participatory budgeting and then suddenly says, actually, we're not going to do this anymore there is going to be disquiet in the electorate now you know if you're in brazil and you're bolsonaro and you don't care about the electorate that's not going to change what you do but that then becomes yet another if you like potential nail in your coffin because you know another group of people are going to get pissed off with you and um are more likely to you're more likely to have a revolution on your hands and that's how other people do it in other parts of the world um when they're not given a lot of choice how it is going to play out um, in Australia, we're not a particularly revolting people, so, you know, we might do it differently. But if, if it gets remembered well enough, at the moment, you may not get our votes in the next election. And if we actually start looking around for candidates who are more likely to work with you, so it's not just a matter of not voting for you, but for voting for another oligarch, but actually, I'm not voting for you because I'm going to vote with this person in my electorate who I built this relationship with, and who, whom we already have a working relationship with before we decide, actually, we want you to be our representative, then, you know, there becomes a viable way of thinking about what we do. Now, you know, I'm, I'm not saying every electorate has to go and choose an independent. What I'm saying is, you know, if you're, if you're Labour or you're Liberal or you're Greens parliamentarian is happy to work with you and they're in the job and you're happy with the job they're doing, great, vote for them. But if they're not doing your job or if your independent doesn't deliver, you know, find another one. And what, what are some of the ways that you could organise that are actually quite independent of government? I guess the kitchen table conversations model is certainly one of them, yep. isn't it? So if you're going to build this sort of structure within an electorate, then the kitchen table conversations model, see our website for how you do one, um, <laughs> I think you've got packages too, and it looks sort of a step-by-step yeah, step way right, of yeah. forming it and encouraging right. people not so, to be so intimidated by it. Correct, that there is a whole um, package about mm-hmm. how you do one, what you do, the sorts of mm-hmm. questions, the rules for, you know, respectful discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, it's all there. And so, yes, get a mob of your friends together. Start talking about this with your friends and your neighbours. Do the questions, you know, what's wrong? Second process, okay, if that's what's wrong, what can we do about it? Third process, okay, if that's what we want to do, how can we do this? Um, do it on your own, join other people, take over a political party, put up your own independent. Um, but the first place to start really is is go to, in the ACT, the five members that you've got already and have a chat with them about what they can do to help you and work with you and how are they going to come back and work mm. with you and, and see what responses you get. So there might be another Mary in that, and then there's a way to deal with that. Yeah. Hmm. And then I'm wondering, too, when you gave us that example of, you know, a representative who wasn't willing to work with the people, and that representative is no longer has a position. Yeah. um, Was that in the really early stages when this was a fairly new concept in communities um, where that representative maybe did feel, um, you know, not... um, Answerable to the people, you know, they just felt very confident in their position that the people weren't able to do anything about it. Well, I I mean, 
Yeah, I think she came in with the mindset that, you know, I've been parachuted into this electorate, they voted for me last time, I'm, you know, their representative, mm -hmm. I'm working for them, um, even though she spent most of her time there. But, I mean, she did do, you know, the, the <laughs> usual stuff in the electorate. But she wasn't prepared to take that next step of saying, well, you know, you are my constituent, so I'm going to work with you in the way you want me to work with you. I'm going to do it my way because this is the way we've always done it. And she sort of, in the way, called their bluff. So that's what happened. So, you know, we're not necessarily thinking people can go and call their representative bluffs. I think it's much more about, look, you know, we're a bunch of citizens. We've had a group of conversations amongst us in our kitchen table conversations. We have these ideas about how this might go and we want to talk to you about this. Yeah, I guess an extension <laughs> of that is I can never remember if it was Hong Kong or Singapore, but after, after the Occupy movement, they set up their own... Oh, it was a website or an app or something. I'm not very clear on the story, but essentially they crowdsourced in a similar sort of way to kitchen table conversations a whole platform of what it, what the government should be doing. So they set up this shadow website and they had shadow ministers. They had everything that the government had, but they sort of made a soap opera out of it of what you would be doing if <laughs> if it was us controlling it and not them. Yeah, and apparently that was really effective in firing the imagination of the whole population into thinking, wow, that we really could be doing better stuff. Mm. Yeah, I don't remember where that was either, but I have heard the story. Mm. Mm. And, and indeed, that, that is a, a tactic that people could use, that um, what, what the electorate-level mobilisation people are hoping to do, and CAPAD's working with them on this, is, is to actually set up a website which people can go to with a bit of, you know, a toolbox about, well, this is how you do this. So, you know, this is kitchen table conversation, see CAPAD website. This is um, the sorts of things you need to think about. This is ways you can work with parliamentarians. This is how the system works. Um, these are some ideas that other people around the world are doing. Um, these are some things other people in Australia are doing. Um, I know there's now some people in North Sydney who are doing this. So. You know, this is beginning to get people's imaginations doing. It's something that, in a way, we could do quite well in Canberra because it's a reasonably small geographic place um, and we have only five electorates. The fascinating thing with Canberra is that we have five representatives in each electorate. And so it's, you know, how do we get the representatives working cross-party in our interests rather than bunkering down in their camps? That's sort of... A, a further challenge that we have to think about here. And one of the, the major challenges we have right now, even to the idea of doing kitchen table conversations, of course, is COVID. Yeah. And, and COVID has restricted, as you said, not only the um, candidates being able to get out in public and do their traditional, um, you know, support yep. campaign tactics, uh, but it also means that, you know, the public are having trouble yep. in you know, forming something yep. cohesive. So, you know, I know social media has played a big part both as a platform for candidates and for the people. Yep. So how could people perhaps use that as a tool um, that would bypass some of the COVID restrictions that we're facing right now so they can still be really participatory and, and active? Um, I mean, we, we can still have meetings of groups of people as long as mm. we do the whole 1.5 metres and we don't put too many people in a space. Um, and as we saw around the world, lots of people went outdoors. And so, you know, you had a neighbourhood party. 
around the neighbourhood with everybody spatially distancing but interacting mm. and sharing. Um, you could run a kitchen table conversation a bit like that. It would be a bit weird. but A kitchen you know, table getting... or kitchen picnic? A kitchen picnic, yeah. yes. <laughs> what? A, picnic, a picnic table a picnic conversation. Picnic table conversation. Picnic table conversation. And... But we're getting so used to weird, that's not going to be weird, really. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, It'll seem very normal, actually. Yes. <laughs> I'm talking to people, yeah. Yeah. And if you want to be even more cautious, there is Zoom. And if COVID does come back and we have to go into more lockdown, there is still Zoom or Skype or just telephones, you know, depending on how you want to do it, WhatsApp. So... Um, you know, there are ways and means, and it's just a, a matter of the organisation. Because what's important is the is the dialogical talking. The being together, of course, is better than the being together apart. But being together apart is better than not being together at all. Yes, yes. We're sort of quite lucky, really, aren't we? Yeah. 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 Um, so what about parties and democracy, political parties? Because to me it seems that there's a... Uh, there's a conflict there, quite a base sort of conflict. Um, whereas the representative, who are they representing? Are they representing the party platform or are they representing their electors who may or may not agree with the party platform? A deep set of questions there which have no clear answer. But I will make an attempt. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so, I mean, again, it's it, the parties are part of the historical infrastructure that we have um, inherited. So... Um, they grew out of. They actually grew out of community mobilisation of, of people who wanted to be part of choosing who their representative was within the sort of existing party system as it was in Britain, and this went around the world. So, and, and that unfortunately has evolved into being less and less of a community representative as as a particular sort of set of interest representatives, where again it becomes the oligarchs not so much the community anymore and parties going through a transition so they have failing grassroots membership but at the same time they have to maintain their structure corporate donors have decided well this is a way we can influence what goes on they need money to do their job we give them money we give them money with no strings attached but of course there are strings attached um and so this is where parties have gone. And so they're more and more, you know, people who join, you know, junior libs, junior labour in university, go up through the party machinery, become party officials, do their time, get selected for a seat, go into parliament. We're, we've lost, parties have evolved beyond that, you know, get community people who are interested in what's happening and putting them forward. Mm. And what, what's the membership of political parties like in Australia? I can't give you the numbers, but the stuff I have read is that they are much lower than they ever have been. Um, and, and it's something all political parties are struggling with. It's not just the Libs, the Labor and the Greens. You know, it's, it's that people, as part of this sort of cynicism about parties being taken over by the corporate interest it's, it's, and, and excluding people who aren't, you know, in the straight and narrow party mould. It's a very, very demographic based. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, people are, are looking at other ways of being involved. And so, you know, young people traditionally in, in the last few elections have voted at much lower rates than ever before. On the other hand, 
you know, get up um, AYCC Extinction Rebellion are attracting people at that demographic age and that age group at much greater numbers because they're seeing this is the way they can influence politics because obviously voting for somebody who's not going to represent you well doesn't work. All I'd encourage them to do is actually vote for somebody who you think is going to represent you well and work with them as well as this activism which is really important for you know moving society along. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So you've got something on your website you refer to as well-being indicators. Yes. Um, so would you like to tell us a little bit about that? Okay, so well-being is this concept that um, being well is about knowing who you are, knowing your place in the universe, being able to feed and clothe yourself and send your children to school, Um having a good relationship with your family, your peers, your neighbours and your society, feeling like you have sort of some control over your destiny and having a healthy, supportive ecosystem there to keep the whole shebang running. So that's, that's being well. Wellness, therefore, is you know, just a concept on that. And, of course, being healthy is part of being well. Lots of people around the world are disenchanted with the idea that the money flow through the system is a good measure of of how well we are and have looked at other ways of indicating. So Bhutan has its happiness indicators, but lots of people around, you know, there's the general genuine progress indicator. um, And uh, so the ACT, amongst other jurisdictions has taken this idea of having well-being indicators to know how well we are doing as a society in the ACT. And so they are going to use that to inform their budgets. Mm, yeah, and I guess the uh, the well-being indicator sort of thing was, was really pioneered in Bhutan, wasn't it? Well, they did their happiness one, but, you know, um, the, the Australian Institute's got their genuine progress indicator. There's the thing called the ANDI, which is the Australian National... Um, I can't remember, indicator that's come out of a group in Melbourne. So there are lots of people working on... on, And when you look at all the indicators, there's huge overlap. You know, people... You know, it's about have people got jobs? Are they feeling satisfied in their lives? Are they happy in their family? Are they... You know, can they buy food? All those things. The Australian National Development Index, that's um, the one I couldn't remember before. And so, as, as we were saying, there are lots of ways. So New Zealand, this last budget of theirs, they've looked at wellbeing indicators as a way of framing what the budget priority should be. And Adam, Andy Barr has made it really clear that he's keen that the ACT is doing a similar thing. So there's been this process over the last, well, year and a bit, really, where we've been looking at um, what would be the indicators that we would use in the ACT. And there's quite a process there. And Canberra Alliance has been involved because um, we've been putting in about, you know, good governance, community involvement, getting um, constituents able to participate in policy making and decision making. Yeah, yeah. So I guess um, we've... Um We've been looking at all these alternatives, but we are sort of stuck with what we've got at the moment. So, as we make a change, yes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. I mean, we've, we've covered our aspirations to some extent, but um, yeah, yeah. How is the? How are the statements that you've been doing sort of? How are they likely to influence things? Okay, well, um, so a couple of things. We we looked at 
website traffic over the last, since 2015, and we've had three elections in that time. We've had two federal elections and we've had an ACT election. So one federal election, ACT election 2016 and last year's federal election. What we've noticed in both cases, and there are graphs on the website that show this, that in the pre-election period, visits and numbers of visitors to the websites go up. Which website is this? This is the Canberra Alliance for Participatory Democracy website. Yeah, right, yep. CanberraAlliance.org.au. Um, Canberra Participatory Democracy, as a search term finds us. <laughs> or CAPAD. Or CAPAD. CAPAD less so, but... And then, so, so yeah, looking at that website traffic and then looking at what the downloads were, there were lots of downloads in this period, people looking at election-related material. Now, we can't tell from our analysis what election-related material it was, but it was coming down off our election pages. And we had lots of stuff up there. We had press releases. We had candidate statements. So obviously there are people out there who are interested. And also, interestingly, interestingly even between elections, people are going to this site and downloading election-related material. And just because it's a 20... 20 election, people are going back and they're looking at the 2016 and 2019 election material as well. So that that's one aspect. The second aspect is we suddenly decided if somebody puts in a cab ad, in a cab ad candidate statement, did they get more votes? So we actually did some statistical analysis on the votes. And I can show you this really pretty graph, but to describe it to our listeners, basically on the y-axis, which is the one that goes up and down, we have the number of votes that people receive. And the x-axis, which is the one that run, runs along the bottom, we've got the, the, who the candidates were. So each individual candidate by the number of votes. So we've got two lines that run down these votes, starting at the top of the going up axis and running down in a sort of semi-U-shaped curve out along the bottom of the bottom axis. More like the letter L, the capital More L like than the anything. Letter, yeah, or a, yes. So think about a, a curvy L. Mm-hmm. And there are two lines. There's a brown line and above the brown line there is a, there is a blue line. So two Ls running in sort of parallel with a bit of overlap. The brown line at the bottom are the candidates who didn't put in a candidate statement. The blue line above them is the candidates who did put in a candidate statement. And that shows us that the way the lines configure, it shows that the candidates who put in a candidate statement received more votes than the candidates who didn't. We checked that because we're scientists statistically, and there's a statistically significant difference in the shape of the two lines. Now, And we did that twice. We did that once, including all the candidates, and then we took out the sitting MLAs because, of course, sitting MLAs have a bit of a a bias towards them in terms of getting votes because they're already sitting. So we ran the same analysis without, and we found there was an even bigger gap between the candidates who um, put in a statement and the candidates who didn't. Now, we have to be really cautious with these results. I cannot say, in all honesty, that it is because they put in a candidate statement that they got more votes. There might be other factors as candidates that made them attractive to to voters. And that the fact they put in a candidate statement just happens to be one of those factors that makes them a better candidate. 
but there is that difference that we noted. Mm. So it's illustrating that we're definitely seeing a benefit to voters when the candidate statements are responded to. I'm not, like, to be strictly truthful about this, I'm not sure we can we can actually say that. What we can say is there seems to be something happening, <laughs> even if we can't pin down what it is. And that can be enough just to motivate people, right, to see change potentially happening. Well, that's right. So it means that I think if, if we're thinking from the candidate's perspective... Um, I would encourage them to think about this when they're deciding whether to put the time into filling in a candidate statement and giving it to us. But I'd also encourage voters to be asking candidates, you know, if they ran into them at the shops or if they do come door knocking and stand 1.5 metres away from your front door, um, ask them, did they put in a candidate statement? When you get the little piece of cardboard in your letterbox with the email address, email them and say, well, go to our website go to the elections page at the CAPAD website and see whether your candidate has put in a statement. If they have put in a statement, let them know you've read it. If they haven't put in a statement, say, I'd like you put in a statement because I want to know if I'm going to vote for you, how well you're going to represent me. Oh, that's mm. great. I There's, would encourage voters to do. Yes, I love that. There's also other areas people can go to um, become informed as well. Like there's um, community services directories, which yep. give you some indication yep. too. Um, the Your Say community panel. Yep. Okay. And then the ACT community directory. And there's a couple of other things international. The Citizens UK, and uh, which organises communities to act together. And then the Citizens Handbook, which is a North American Canadian, Canadian, yeah. Oh, Canadian, okay. I should know that. I was living in Canada for 25 years. Uh, (laughs) And the project for public spaces. Yeah, so Mm -hmm. part of our our mission, if you like, is to to let people know what's happening elsewhere and what's going on that they might be interested in getting involved with. And so we're trying to build this this Ideas and Resources Hub as part of our website that that has this material in there. And so... Um, one of our, our big ideas is this idea of the active citizen or the active community member. And so these resources that you've listed um, are ways that um, community members can be active. And, of course, if you have your kitchen table conversation and you get a group of you together and you're thinking, OK, what do we do about this? We've got some ideas. Hmm. Visit our website, have a poke around, see where it takes you. Mm. And you've also mentioned that there's something on your website called the Common Social Change Library, which you're building? Yeah, so that's that's a new thing that's come out last year. They, again, they're, they're a collection of these resources and they've been running a series of what are called reset conversations where they've had a sort of a speaker um, present an article. There's been a, a, a bit of background reading that they've got members to do and then they've come together by Zoom from all over Australia to have a conversation about these issues. So it's a bit of a, a big kitchen table conversation. Um, and those resources are now, I think, on the website and they're available. I think they're available if you weren't involved to go and have a look at. Which I did last night. Okay. <laughs> so they are. <laughs> yeah, look, I'd, I'd be neglectful if I didn't ask you about uh, democracy in the workplace. I mean, at the moment, we sort of expect democracy in the political sphere where we wouldn't tolerate a a dictator or anything well, yep. would certainly be pretty unhappy about mm-hmm. it. But um, as soon as you sort of walk in the door of your workplace, you 
put your democracy hat on the peg and leave it at the door, and as you go in, it, it, it is much more of a dictatorship. Depends on your workplace. Oh, of course, course it does, <laughs> yes, yes. But by and large, you are correct. The CEO makes the decisions, and your job is to be a cog in the wheel. Um, there have been quite a few political scientists and philosophers talk about the fact that if we're going to have real democracy, um, then it has to be across all f- um, aspects of life. So there's a guy, Takas Fotokakis, Fotolakis. Oh, yes, yes. And he's got this idea of the five realms of democracy. There's the political realm, there's the economic realm, there's the workplace realm, there's the um, social sphere realm, and there's the family. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And each of these realms has to be democratic for society to be truly democratic. And his critique of the Marxist-Leninists were that they focused on the economic realm and they didn't worry about the other realms. And so, of course, you know, their form of, of democracy failed. In fact, it wasn't democracy. No, no, it was uh, control from the top down. So. Totally autoc- autocratic, yep. that's right. Um, and so the real challenge we have as, as constituents and as, as people and as family members is how do we do democracy in families and, um, and, and how do we bring this into the workplace? I mean, there is the whole um, movement around, remind me, Scotty, North um, Spain. Catholic. Oh, Mondragon, the Mondragon, Mondragon Cooperative Cooperative model, yeah. yeah. So this whole idea of cooperatives. Um, I mean, a lot of our big financial institutions used to be cooperatives um, owned by the members who chucked their money in, you know, the older the odd order of old fellows or whatever they were called. Yeah, and all the mutuals. became yeah. BT Bank and, you know, all these things <laughs> as part of our um, neoliberal revolution. Mm. So they were, they were cooperatives. They were people getting together to help each other in times of need. The Mondragon model, is, which is actually quite more widespread, is, you know, workers own the business. The workers run the business. They elect people to manage the business um, for a period of time they recognise that people who are managing the business might need to be paid a bit more than people who run the business. But, you know, the toilet cleaner has a say in the running of the business and the CEO isn't paid 436 times what the toilet cleaner is paid. He might be paid eight times what the toilet cleaner is paid Mm -hmm. because, of course, the toilet cleaner is paid a decent wage. Yes. Yeah, look, there's a lot to be said for it, a lot to be said for it, and you can uh, can go to Cocambra... well, you can't go to the website at the moment because it's down for repairs, but uh, yes, yes. Well, you've got some meetings coming up, some co-camera meetings. We do, yes. On Monday, you could... Uh, if you email behind the lines at gmail.com, you can get in touch with Cotambra that way. Uh, if you're keen to come to a meeting on Monday night, give us, a, give us an email, behind the lines, 98.3 at gmail.com. Don't forget the 98.3. And Peter, just to recap, so we've touched on a lot of different points and now some of our listeners maybe only tuned in halfway. So sort of to get people really clear on, you know, what's the next step they can take and in informing themselves and, and, you know, making really good decisions in the upcoming elections. What would you say is that the most important action that our listeners could be taking at this stage of the elections? Well, I think asking candidates when candidates come knocking 
Um, have you filled in the CAPAD candidate statement? Mm. And, they'll, and they'll say, what's CAPAD? And, yeah. <laughs> and you can tell them. <laughs> and you can say, well, CAPAD is that group who mm. wants you to represent us well. Um, of course, if you've gone to our website first and seen which of your current local members and, co- and candidates have filled in the statements, that would be useful. If you go to our website, canberra-alliance.org.au and scroll a bit down the page, there's a button that says ACT 2020 election. And you go there and you can look up which candidates have already filled in statements, which candidates haven't. Um, Currently, we have 15 candidates, a few Greens, few Australian progressives, a couple of Labor, a couple of independents. You have some of the Canberra progressives on your website too. We do. Yes, yes they mentioned Canberra. that to me last night. Yes. They were very, very clear about having me. Yeah. <laughs> not, not all of them, not all the Greens and not all the Canberra progressives. So plug in there if you're listening. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, uh, again, look at the statements. See what the candidates are saying their qualifications to represent you are and what are the qualifications that they or what are they telling you that they're going to do to involve you in governing with them in the ACT and look at how they're going to strengthen democracy. And I think the thing that we sometimes forget is that, you know, it's not just about electing who appears to be the best leader or the best candidate. It's about remembering what matters to you and yeah. where your interests lie yeah. as well. So, you know, looking for, you said, the, the transparency from some of these statements to see who aligns with yeah. your values and who yes. aligns with your interests yeah. and, um, you know, taking, a, taking it back to the individual as yeah. well. Yeah. And then I think mm. when you get to the, I mean, there's, there's going to be, they're encouraging us to pre-poll this year, the elections ACT. They want us not all crowding up in big lines on Saturday the 17th of October. So when you go and cast your pre-vote, your postal vote, or if you leave it to the last minute on the 17th, don't just think about the party platform, but think about of the, the candidates within the party that you would prefer to see elected, who has given a statement and who has told you what yeah, most closely aligns with your interests and values and who has said that they're going, you know, how have they said they're going to work with you as a constituent if they're your representative and vote for the people who you think within that party grouping would be the best representative. Hmm. And for people that would like to get um, more involved with CAPAD, um, do you have um, education um, opportunities or upcoming events they can attend? Can they Do they volunteer or join the organisation? They can definitely volunteer. Um, and there's a, on our website there is a, a join and there's also a contact us form which um, goes to the secretary and they will be in contact. In terms of events, we have been running a series um, of of Zoom events this year where we've had um, Rob Salter talk about his electoral level, electorate level mobilisation idea. We've had uh, Lynn Stevens talk about the work we did to um, reflect on the ACT governments for um, many public citizens jury processes um, and that brought in the OECD um, citizens as partners work that we were contributing Mm. we contributed to last year which is a big report on the oecd website link on our website um we had um this sunday coming up in fact we've got um mark evans from uh, canberra uni the institute for governments and policy analysis talking us about their democracy 25 2025 project which again is looking at um in a time of COVID and, and in the next 
five years as we go forward, how do we try and restructure the system to be a better democracy, a more healthy democracy that better involves citizens? And so um, people can, again, go to our website, go to the events section of the website, link on there, connect to the human human humantics <laughs> register um, if they want to become a member they can do that at the same time but we're quite happy just to have you come along and listen and then go and do something Fabulous and you have a newsletter as well really people and can sign we up have for a, Yeah we have Awakening Democracy it goes out mm. sort of roughly monthly um, and we send it to people who are on our emailing list and, and then we stick a copy up on the website there's, there's, if you go to the newsletter section of the Ideas and Resources Hub um, you can find our past newsletters there. So I must have asked you this question, Peter, because this has been the theme all round is motivations and vision. So what's Peter's personal vision to see at the outcome of the election? What would you like I to visualise? I would like a bunch of representatives in there who are really actively um, prepared to and and looking at and and actually working with citizens in their electorates on how to um you know what are the big issues what are the policy options from for doing something about those issues and then having the citizens involved in monitoring how those that implementation is happening and feeding back to the representatives to feed back to the government of the day how it's going so that we are all involved in designing the Canberra that we want to live in for the next 50 years. Mm. I love that, the Canberra we want to live in. <laughs> Bring it on, yeah. Yes. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure having you on the show this morning, Peter. Thank and, you very much uh, for taking the time. Me, Zena, and great. we will actually be having you back in a few back. weeks yes. to yeah. talk about some of the outcomes. Yep. Where so we're at. Yeah, so yep. that'll be fabulous. The trends. What's yeah, the trends, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So don't forget to keep um, keep an eye on our Facebook page, which lists all of our upcoming shows, and we'll let you know when Peter will be back with us. So that was Dr. Peter Tate from the Canberra Alliance of Participatory Democracy, also Ooh. known as CAPAD, and uh, joining us to talk about the ACT elections 2020. Thank yeah, you. so if you, uh, if you liked that conversation and you... <laughs> you uh, you think you want to hear more of it, make sure that you go to 2XFM.org.au and give us your money, give us your time, help us out some way. You can click on the Support Us button. You can become a uh, subscriber there, which is a very helpful way you can support 2XX. Um, you can become a volunteer. We have all sorts of training. You can come in and, and wind up doing the show if you want. It's, it's a great, fun thing to do. It's uh, talk to all sorts of really cool people like Peter mm. um, yeah so definitely get involved mm. and next week we're going to have uh, independent candidate David Pollard joining us so uh, tune in to have a listen to what David would like to share you've been listening to Scotty Foster and Zena Richardson with Behind the Lines on 2XX Community Radio 98.3 FM <laughs>